These experiences have shown me that this moment, that this election has never mattered more. That's why I'm running for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. With those words on June 22nd, former San Antonio Congressman Will Hurd launched his campaign for president of the United States. He has served his country as a CIA agent, hunting down terrorists in the Middle East, and having served three terms as a congressman from the 23rd Congressional District of Texas. Now he wants to serve his country again as president. He believes that under his leadership, the United States can tackle inflation, immigration, and virtually any other issue that needs solving. As a cybersecurity expert, he says the United States isn't doing enough to protect our critical infrastructure from cyber attacks coming from nation states. With that, let's get beyond the bite with presidential candidate Will Hurd. Will, my first question to you is, isn't that a beautiful football right there? Texas Tech football, home of the Super Bowl champion, uh, Patrick Mahomes. Well, well, look, I, I, you, you know, you know uh, Patrick Mahomes is a really amazing guy. And, and I know that because my nephew was getting, was getting recruited um, when he was coming out of, out of high school. And Texas Tech was recruiting him. And they had Patrick Mahomes reach out to him. And what was fascinating, even though my nephew didn't go to, to Texas Tech, uh, Mahomes still checked in, right? Like he's a really, he's a really um good dude. So that's why I'm 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 a big fan. And also my brother's a Red Raider, so um he <laughs> he, he he's a hit at parties. He makes a cocktail called the Mahomie, and it's <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. Well, f- first of all, thanks for for joining us today. You know, I wanted to start off by just talking about uh, what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. You're you're leading the way on a lot of issues. You've written a book, American Reboot, and you got married. So life after Congress uh, seems to be treating you well. Look, I have um, been fortunate that the best thing in 2023 is being married. I always say I'm in Q2 of of marriage and and the love fund <laughs> the love fund is is moving in the right direction um you know uh, Lindley's my best friend she always has been and it's awesome it's been it's been great and it's wild to think I've been out of congress now um over 2 years or almost 2 yeah I guess over 2 years you know it's it's I thought I understood technology but now working with companies that are on the cutting edge of technology open ai uh, Palantir, uh, you know, a company called Icon in 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 Austin that's building 3D homes, right? They're gonna they're gonna build the first probably structure on the moon, right? It's just it's pretty amazing what what's happening in the world, and things are moving so fast that I don't think we recognize that. And from the regulatory perspective of having been in government, we're not keeping up. Oh, and at the same time, the dangers that we're facing. This is this is you know we live in a complicated times and we live in dangerous times, and our adversaries are actually only increasing. So it's a it's an exciting time in my opinion to be alive. But at the end of the day, uh, we're still we we're lucky we live in the greatest uh, country in the world. Well, we're going to get to a lot of that, including the role that Lindley played in helping you with your book and where we are in the world with how things are changing and what's happening with uh, nation states. But first, I want to start off talking about the economy. We just went through what seems to be a regular effort in Congress, and that's the debt limit deal. Um, first of all, how do you feel that turned out? Well, in the end, we didn't default, right? And and so we, we couldn't, we can't default. That's, that's, that's number one. Number two, the fact that everybody uh, doesn't get everything they want is a sign. It's probably a, a pretty good negotiation. But the the what what we need to do now is when we're far away from the threat of default and you know causing international uh, financial destruction, let's not get in this position in the future, right? You know, I, I my my staffs so over over all my different careers would always laugh at me because I'd always be like, don't repeat the same mistake. Uh, making a mistake once is is fine. Don't make the mistake uh, multiple times. And so now is when the negotiation should be happening to say, how, how do we prevent this? And it starts with the appropriations process. Right? You shouldn't appropriate more money 
than what, what is going to come in, period, a full stop. That's how we have to live in our personal lives. That's how, that's how businesses have to operate. That's how state governments operate. Um, the federal government should, should be able to do that. And, and, and the funny thing about, about Congress, they, they negotiate through subtra- subtraction, right? It's here are the 100 things I want. And then when the final deal gets done, there's like four things left. So everybody feels like those 96 things I left on the floor, you're pissed <laughs> off about them. But in business, how do we do it? You start with one thing. Here's the one thing I'm selling. Well, uh, I need some other things. And you build through addition. So when a final contract is done and you have five things, you're super excited because you were only going and pitching one thing, right? And, and that's, that's, a, that's a mindset and a mentality that is going to have to change if we're, gonna, if we're going to move at the speed which we need to move and, and solve, these, solve these major crises. Well, and to your point about, you know, making the same mistake, why did it take so long for everybody to come together? It's it, these negotiations don't happen in a few weeks. They don't happen in a month or two. They, they're usually a six month deal. Why did the administration and Congress take so long to get the ball rolling? Well, it starts with President Biden refusing to negotiate. Number one. Number two, un- un- unfortunately, in Congress, things don't happen until there's a deadline. Uh, nobody wants to, you know, we're like juniors in high school and waiting till the night before before paper is or project is due. And and that's the way Congress has been the last the last 20 years. Um so so that that that's a failure of leadership, to be frank. And and I put that in in President Biden's camp. He thought he could get everything he wanted. Guess what? You you only have, you know. Uh, your team is only controlling two branches or two parts of, of the government. And so you're going to have to negotiate. And that's ultimately what what happened. But it's 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 just it's um, most of the public is like, you saw this coming. This is like the slowest moving train wreck. Right. It's like everybody's walking on the side. You're like, uh, that train's getting ready to run into something. And like everybody sees it. <laughs> And it's like let's stop it. Let's stop it before it gets there. But 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 again, it goes back to leadership. And when these bills are written, you need to be showing that in in that moment. And when you're when when there's not a crisis, uh, you should be working to solve problems. But but people love a crisis. So Speaker McCarthy has a razor thin margin in the House. How do you feel like he was able to maneuver through to be able to get the deal done? I think I think um, everybody needs to stop underestimating Kevin McCarthy, and and I'd put my uh, myself in that category. I didn't think he was going to get the votes to become speaker, and he did. And I thought this was going to be the thing. Most people thought that this debt ceiling debate was going to be was going to be his downfall. Um, the fact that you had debates within the Freedom Caucus about using this arcane parliamentary procedure called a motion to vacate the chair. This was the gun that was put to John, John Boehner's head. A number of years ago, and would ultimately cause him to step down. Um, the fact that Kevin won, got the entire conference to vote on a debt ceiling deal. You got to remember, there were probably four dozen members that have been in Congress for over two decades that have never voted to increase the debt ceiling, right? And and that the fact that you had so many Republicans do that in a Republican-only bill, we knew it wasn't going anywhere, but that was a step. But the fact that Kevin pulled this this through, you know, he he should be he should be commended. And and guess what? Everybody's moved on to to other topics. So he's proven very adept in how to manage that that small razor thin majority. And there's probably no bigger issue that he was going to have to use that that slim uh, majority than the debt ceiling. And so so I think the rest of this um, this this Congress is I don't want to say smooth sailing because it's Congress, anything can happen. But this was this was the thing that was probably going to most likely uh, impact his speakership. And he, he was successful. While we're talking about the economy, you know, and Congress is, is having difficulty uh, tightening its belt and living within its means, the American people have to deal with their own budget every day. We're seeing them in... Um, being greatly impacted by inflation, the average new car loan rates are between eight and a half and nine percent. You know, and that's on top of the pent up demand that we already have. 
how how do we as a country come out of this uh, downward economic spiral? Sure. First off, it, it requires um, President Biden to recognize that fiscal policy is as important as monetary policy. A fiscal policy is is taxes, spending, and borrowing. Right. Monetary policy is is money supply and 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 rates. Okay. Um, you know, oftentimes President Biden must be like, it's monetary policy's fault. No, fiscal policy ha- ha- has a role in this. That's point one. Point two, stop fueling the fire. You cannot be putting government funds into at a time where where you're seeing the, the, the rising in inflation. So that means cut spending, right? The worst time to talk about uh, uh, increasing taxes is when everybody's hurting uh, from inflation. And then three, you have to address uh, the deficit in order to start bending the curve back on 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 the debt. And and so th- there's simple; th- it, it, they seem simple, but everybody knows that one of the motivations in the federal government is if you don't spend money, and by the end of the year you lose that money. If you don't use it, you lose it. Right? Everybody knows that phrase. That is what creates inefficiencies in government. So imagine having the, the, the federal government, the executive branch have a four-year budget, right? And four-year appropriations where if you save money in year one, you could potentially use it in year two, and then you can even say, continue to save it until year three. That's going to have a more accurate picture of what the real costs are in government. And, and that's going to go a long way in helping us reduce um, government spending and get the the executive branch part to a point where it's it's efficient and lean, and so that's a super you know it's it's not a sexy topic, uh, but it's something that basic with how we operate we can improve the way the way the government works and start bringing down some of those costs. So 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 again, in, in inflation is hurting every American. When you look at our our kids and grandkids are having an impact. When you look at the cost of, of school and going to going to colleges, you know, it's increasing almost threefold than what than inflation over like the last 20 years. And it's 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 the 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 core cost has increased significantly since you and I were in school. And so so this is a real problem that needs that that needs real leadership. And we do that by focusing on fiscal policy as well as monetary policy, um, not fueling the fire by by overly wasteful and aggressive government spending. And then dealing, finally dealing with deficits, so we can we can impact the debt. Your book, American Reboot, was focused on the need to literally reboot the way we do things, to rethink the way we do things, to bring, I think you called it pragmatic realism uh, to the way we do things. And so, what comes to mind is immigration. The United States hasn't reformed our immigration system since Ronald Reagan was president in 1986-87. It's been about 37 years. You were a congressman representing the congressional district with the largest stretch of of the southern border than any other congressional district. So I would think if you needed an example of what needed to be rebooted, it would be immigration and border security. So tell me how we reboot our immigration and security issues. Well, thanks for uh, getting my blood pressure up, Eddie. Um, this is a this is an <laughs> issue. This is an issue I spent a lot of time in in Congress on, and this is one of those issues where we know what the fixes are. We know. I wrote most of the legislation on this stuff, and but the problem is when it comes to immigration and border security, Republicans and Democrats would rather use this issue as a political bludgeon against each other than solving the actual problem. Um, number one, immigration is positive for the country. At a time where even though we're seeing high inflation and all the talk of the recession, there are so many industries that need workers. It's 2023. We should be able to say, hey, it's it's June. Texas needs um, more people to help, help in, you know, in, in tourism. Florida needs more people in agriculture. California needs AI researchers, right? We should be able to have a system that's based on need and show, hey, 
we don't have enough people locally and in the United States to do this. We need to attract better talent. Like, like that, that's the, that's the, the place that we should get to. Now, it, it, before we can even start talking about that, we have to deal with the crisis that's at the border. And, and, and this is real. Look, this is a problem that started under the last administration by treating everybody as an asylum seeker. And that's continued under this administration. And, and it, it's real simple. Coming to the United States of America because you want a better job is not a reason for asylum. That's something that should be done through legal immigration. We should be increasing consular officers in our embassies around the world and offering you know, a, a guest worker program and guest worker visas. Everybody who's come into the United States illegally has used a, a coyote, has used a human smuggler. And on average, a human smuggler is making about $10,000 a trip. Last year, the smugglers in Mexico alone probably made $25 billion. That's with a B. Let's have some of that go into the United States of America into, into <laughs> Phoenix, right? Like, it, so, so anyway, like, there are so many things that we can do to, to address this problem, um, but it starts with political leadership. Address the border. We know how to do that. Treat human smuggling like a national intelligence priority. And that's one. We got to, you know, uh, uh, enforce our laws. Um, two, when it comes to students, I'm sorry. If you go to University of Texas um, at San Antonio and get a computer science degree and you're from overseas, you should be getting an H-1B visa to stay here and use those skills here. Start a company here, um, especially when it comes to, to you know, young men and women from China. If, chi if the Chinese government is going to steal our intellectual property, I want to steal their engineers and have, have them working here in the United States of America. Because guess what? They've seen all of their uh, Chinese leaders of the big companies that have ultimately gotten screwed by the Chinese government. And they're like, ah, I don't want any of that. Right. And so that's an opportunity. So I, we, we can spend an entire, we can spend an entire session. I'm talking about immigration and, and what it needs. And, and all these things I've talked about, we, you know, we didn't talk about addressing root causes as fueling illegal immigration in places like the Northern triangle, all of these things, 75% of Republican primary voters agree with, 75% of Democratic primary voters agree with it, and why we can't get anything done is, is crazy. And then I get frustrated, and I get too political. Um, you know, oftentimes, it, everybody shakes their, their finger at Republicans. And yes, you know, there's been a lot of Republicans that have been against immigration. But when Democrats held all levers of power under President Obama, they couldn't get immigration reform done. Because a lot of times organized labor doesn't want to see changes because they like the they like the system they have. So so there are influences in both parties that are preventing some re resolution to this issue. That's going to be important to ensure uh, that America continues to grow and has been the economic success it has been for the last couple of decades. Do you think it's because we can't get anything done because? you know, giving something to the other opponent seems uh, weak and it becomes a political argument uh, because one of the challenges is our economy has so drastically changed since Ronald Reagan reformed the Immigration Act over 37 years. Why, why can't we develop a system uh, instead of looking at it as doing reforming immigration as a gift to Democrats and adding more border security as a gift to Republicans. Why can't we devise a system that just works for everybody, for the, for the economy? It, what, what I always am shocked by, guess what? There's enough credit to go around. So if somebody does something, I'm going to go back to my, my district and beat my chest and be like, I did that, right? Like, like the, the opportunities there are there. However, the, the problem, this, this is a good example of how math prevents common sense policy from happening. And what do I mean by math? 92% of House seats get decided in a primary. In, in the last election, on average, about 64,000 people voted in a contested primary. That means uh, 32,001 people decided where 92% of, of members of Congress are. And that when, when that, when you do the math, that means 4% of the population is deciding who their member of Congress is. And, and whether it's Republican or Democrat, it is the most extreme elements of those parties that are influencing those decisions. And so on the right, 
if you do anything on immigration, everybody's afraid of that's amnesty. And it's just like, okay, like not everything's amnesty, right? Like that's the argument that, that they, they try to paint each other with. And then on the far left, it's you're hurting workers, right? And so it's organized labor that is putting that in. So those are the two driving forces. And the reason that those voices, even though they're a minority view population, have an outsized influence is because they have an outside influence in primaries. So what do we do? Get more people voting in primaries. It's, it's real simple. Oftentimes we have better choices in primaries than we do in, 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 in the general election. So if you don't like your choices in November, then you got to get out and vote in, in, in Texas in March during our primary. And I don't care which primary it is, get engaged in the primary process to get people. And, and, and if we saw that change, um, and lessen the influence of those loud voices, uh, you'd see more common sense happen. That's, that's why all the people in Washington that are actually trying to solve problems are people that come from competitive districts, districts like my old district, um, because we get rewarded by solving problems and not throwing bombs. So uh, you bring up your your old district. When you were there, that seat changed hands from Democrat to Republican to Democrat to Republican. Prior to you, we had a, a Democrat Pete Gallego and we had Republican Kiko Conseco. And then, you know, you just keep going back and it, it would flip every two years. Now, since uh, the census and redistricting, it seems like there's a, a slight advantage. I think it may be an R plus three now. now it's a little more than R three, but... But look, it, it, it's definitely an advantage. It's not the same. It's not the same. Like in that case, right? Nobody thought a black Republican could win in a 72% Latino district. Now, I would say there was a few exceptions, like a guy named Eddie Aldrete, who, who, who believed, you know. Um, but, <laughs> but, but this is, you know, and the reason I was able to do it is I'd, I'd go and show, it, go up to places, show, show up to places where people weren't expecting me to go and talk about things that mattered. And, and so, look, politics is not complicated. It's just hard. And you got to have people that are willing to show up. And most members, uh, most elected officials are lazy. They want to do the least amount of work possible. And so they're only going to talk to the loudest voices that get them elected in primaries. And that's how we end up with the situation that we're in. Well, I know that especially like in Maverick County in Eagle Pass, they weren't used to seeing Republicans come through Eagle Pass. You spent a lot of time there. You started your DC to DQ, um, your Dairy Queen kind of tour, showing up in the smallest of towns in that congressional district. And I think it's what, 10 hours from one end of the district to the other. Quite a quite a large district. Well, one of my favorite stories was a political article uh, that actually the reporter made fun of you at the beginning of the article when she called you congressman and you said, please call me Will. And she wrote something, as he said, in an aw shucks moment. By the end of the article, she was apologetic as she realized no matter, she spent three or four days with you, no matter where you went, everyone called you Will. And that was just your your personality uh, that uh, that made you accessible and easy to talk to. Look, it, it was, that was the part that, you know, you don't always see that stuff about being Congress, but that was the part I loved, right? And even even now, when I'm in HEB pushing my cart, you know, um, people come up, they're like, Will, I got this problem. I'm like, man, I'm not in Congress anymore. This, this is how you got to sort it, that's <laughs> how you sort it out. Uh, my 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 favorite story, um, you know, I'm, I'm buying my my goods for, for breakfast and lunch, and the, the checker was like, has anybody ever told you you look like Will Hurd? And I said, I get that. I get that a lot, you know. Um, uh, but but man, like the part of the job that I love and I miss when you're able to help people out, right? And and for most people, you've never had to call your member of Congress to help with the problem. But there's a lot of people that are getting screwed by the federal bureaucracy and they need help. And my job, I took it seriously. My title uh, was representative. That means I represented everybody. People that voted for me, people that didn't vote for me, and and people that didn't vote, and I and I took that I took that seriously, and so um and and like I said, that's how I continue to get reelected, um because people appreciated that. When I'd go to places like Eagle Pass, I remember the first time I went. Look, Eagle Pass and Maverick County, they didn't even have Republican primaries, 
That's how that's how <laughs> that's how little, right? That's how little. And and I think the last Republican primary before mine, there was like 13 people voted in it, right? And so I show up, I show up to this tardiata, an afternoon party, and and like literally there's about 300 people there. 95 came up to me and was like, Why are you here? And my, <laughs> my my answer, you know, all my political advisors were like, listen, Will, there's going to be, this is a lot of L- Latinos here. You know, Latinos are conservative. You should say this, that, and the other. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, when people ask that question, I was, well, why are you here? I'd say, because I like to drink beer and eat barbecue too, right? And, and everybody would laugh. <laughs> and then the next time I'd show up, people would actually shake my hand. Third time I'd show up, people would walk by me and, and whisper, I'm a Republican. Right. And then and then the fourth time people would tell you your story. And look, I, I knew I was never going to win Maverick County. But I think in my last election, I got like I, I got north of like 25 percent, I think, which is pretty significant, uh, considering it's like the third most populated county and no Republican had ever gotten any votes there before. So but yeah, it was it was part of the job that I loved. Coming up with the idea for this podcast was easy. I saw an opportunity to help tell stories from the intersection of business, public policy, and politics. But planning, strategizing, and executing turned out to be the hard part. And that's when I knew I needed help. So I turned to every word media. Nick Chamberlain showed me what I needed to do and by when I needed to have it done if we were going to launch on time. To be honest, I could not have launched Beyond the Bite without the help of Every Word Media. They are the ultimate podcast production partner, and they handle everything from production to promotion. So if you want to elevate your message and inspire your audience, then start your podcasting journey with Every Word Media. If you want to learn more, call Nick at Every Word Media, and you can find them at everywordmedia.com. That's everywordmedia.com, and tell them Eddie sent you. So I, I want to move to your cyber background, you know, and I'm going to ask you a two-part question. So the first part is, as we find ourselves in the internet of things, it doesn't take long in today's household uh, to realize, you know, doing work from home is dependent upon the internet. I, I stream all of my uh, uh, TV. My security system is dependent upon the Wi-Fi and even our washer and dryer uh, use the Wi-Fi to communicate with us to tell us why I don't know, but but that the closed cycle is done or whatever. So my my question is, as we become more and more dependent upon the internet for our daily lives, how worried are you that we are becoming increasingly more vulnerable on a personal level, residential level, to attacks, cyber attacks? Look, the 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 more interconnected we become. There's a lot of positives, right? Um, the access to information and the ability to to seek information and purchase goods and services and to do things is the highest it's ever been in the history of the world. Um, but when you increase those interconnections, you also increase the surface area of attack. And, and so there's more areas of vulnerabilities that the bad guys and gals can, can take advantage of. And, you know, back in the day, when you and, and you, you're talking consumers, but when we look at an industrial size, when when every power station had some operating system, the, the thing that runs all their computers, that was like made by some dude with with Coke bottle glasses that never saw the the light of day. You know, only one person knew how all that stuff worked, right? Now, because we're using we're using some of the, uh, the similar software, more people uh, know how to attack and and take advantage of vulnerabilities, right? And so, so yes, it's increasing. But here's the bottom line: if we do the basics, we protect ourselves from like eighty-five to ninety percent of the attacks that we're vulnerable to. And the basics that I have is everything from using a strong password or two-factor authentication, that's, you know, yeah, look, it's a pain in the ass when you, like, log in, and then it's like, they got to send you a text, and you're like, what's that six-digit code? Can I remember that six-digit code, right? But you're protecting yourself from that. So protecting that information and, and, and having strong, not having your password be password1234, which is the number one password in the world. Um, <laughs> the, 
it's not that's not a joke. I wish it was a joke. Like I know it's sad. Look, so 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 you have manufacturers that are providing some of these new things in the Internet of Things, where the password, the access to system is password. That's the default. That's a problem. Okay. So, but but again, for 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 consumers to defend ourselves, strong password, use two-factor authentication. Two. Don't click on things from people you do not know. Guess what? If you haven't been to Home Depot or Target and you get an email saying you won a a a a, a card, a um a check, a bank card, gift card, gift card for for five hundred dollars, it's a fraud. You didn't win no damn gift card for five hundred dollars. Don't click on that stuff, right? So, so don't, clicking, and that's that's called that's called phishing. And guess what? You used to be able to determine a phishing email pretty quickly because it was usually somebody in like an Eastern European country where English was like their fourth language, and the English in it was all weird. Now with AI, these these phishing scams are getting better. So, so stop clicking on stuff you shouldn't be clicking on. And and number three, uh. Make sure your software is patched. What is what do I mean by that? Your software is always updating because they find that hey, there is a vulnerability in the software that bad guys can take advantage of, and then they fix it. So so make sure your stuff is automatically patched, right? And and automatically upgrade when you're on your browser and in the corner it says update. Freaking update it, right? Like, like be, because because what happens? All of the major threats that we've seen have been adversaries taking advantage of a known vulnerability in software, and 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 that means we had a fix to that. And so so the number of defending against a zero day attack, zero day attack means um, a a previously unknown vulnerability in your software. Look, this is what the Chinese government, the Russian government, uh, the North Koreans, the Iranians, that they're always trying to do. And we're seeing an increase of that, and that's targeting our in, you know, military industrial complex, right? Because this is the Chinese government, the Russians trying to steal our secrets and understand what we're doing. But that is not the majority of the attacks that consumers have. So if you want to have strong cybersecurity, all you got to do is have a strong password. That means over 14 characters. Um, or use two-factor authentication. You should be using two-factor authentication to um, make sure your software is patched. And three, stop clicking on things from people you do not know. And we'll protect ourselves. All right. So let's move. You you mentioned industrial. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, where else we may be vulnerable. How how comfortable do you feel with the grid right now? And how vulnerable are we? to attacks from nation states like Russia, China, and right. and others, especially considering what we went through with Storm Uri, mm -hmm. how catastrophic it was when things shut down. Um, more recently, you know, we saw what, what happened in Austin. So the, yeah, the question is, how vulnerable are we? Look, our, our, our grid is vulnerable. And let me start with a, with a story from probably four year, four or five years ago. There was a German company that bought a bunch of land in West Texas to build a wind farm. And to make a long story short, that German company was like, ah, oh, this is not going to be profitable. And they decided not to do it. But one of their investors was a former senior uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army general who was from Xinjiang province. That's the one where they're putting all the Uyghurs, the ethnic minority, and the Chinese into internment camps, okay? This guy bought, bought this out, and he, he's a, a multi-millionaire now and was going to build this wind farm. Bottom line, that wind farm was going to be able to connect to the Texas grid. And when you provide power into the Texas grid, what do you do? You actually get all the intelligence that Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, ERCOT, that's the folks that oversee our, our, our grid, uh, the Public Utilities Commission, the people that oversee the ERCOT, you would get all their information that they're knowing and understanding about how we're defending the grid. Like, that's the ultimate example 
of the 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 fox in the hen house, right? Now, would that person have been able to bring the grid down in significant areas for a significant amount of time? No, right? And, and that's one reason why when it comes to our grid, we want it to be redundant. Um, we it, it, that's that's part of the reliability issue. But could it have mimicked what we saw from the the super snow, the, the 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 snowstorm? And the answer is yes, right? And why would somebody do that? I don't know. If I was going to invade Taiwan and the person that was going to, you know, that was probably I was most worried about, maybe I get them all worked up by turning their lights out uh, for a couple of days right before I do my invasion. Right? Ah, maybe. That, that's just a crazy idea out there, right? So, so anyways, so, so that's why we got to be mindful of this. Um, and making sure that 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 redundancy is an important issue, and that comes into the Texas grid uniquely. And, and redundancy is sometimes a little bit more expensive, right? But we want to make sure uh, that the lights come on when we need the lights to come on. While we're talking about nation states, I wanted to ask you about Russia and Ukraine. Right now in the Republican Party, you have quite the spectrum of thought. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, originally referred to it as a territorial dispute, which seems like he's tried to walk that back a little bit. And then the the other extreme, former Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, said in a CNN town hall the other night that um, this is a war about freedom. And if Russia wins, we have to worry about global instability and possibly World War III. If Ukraine wins, we'll all be much safer. So where do you fall on that broad political spectrum of thought? Well, we should be helping the Ukrainians as much as we possibly can to win. And what I mean by win, that means pushing the Russians out of all of Ukraine, which includes Crimea. And why should your listeners, why should anybody in the United States of America care? Because we have benefited, the U.S. has benefited from building an international order. It helps us. It benefits us. Rebuilding Europe after World War II is something that helped us. It gave us our greatest trading partner, and it saw us increase a quality of life. So we benefit from this international order. When we don't defend the international order, that's going to hurt us. So if Ukraine loses, why would any of the other Eastern European countries care about what Western Europe or the West thinks, and they're going to start working and cooperating more with Russia that takes partners away from us. That takes potential economic partners away from us. Western Europe is going to care less about us and pay more attention to China. That's going to erode our standing in the rest of the world. That's going to make it, uh, it that means our dollar doesn't go as far as it used to go. That means the best paying jobs are not in the United States of America. Uh, that impacts our quality of life. So we need leaders that are thinking 20 years, not even 20 years, five years down the road about how the decisions we make today impact us back there. That's why Ukraine matters and why we should be defending them. And by the way, we should have supported them in 2008. We should have supported them in 2014, right? And, 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 and we probably wouldn't be in this situation that we're in now. If we would have given the weaponry and the support that the Ukrainians asked after the first invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, would we have seen the death and destruction that we see now? The answer is probably no. And part of that is because of this old, uh, 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 yeah, it's an old-fashioned term about escalation. We think about escalation. Oh, if we do this, that the other side is going to escalate their response. But we're the only ones that think like this. When the Iranians gave the Russians drones to use in, in Ukraine, did we escalate with Iran? No. When we killed Qasem Soleimani uh, for what the Iranian IRGC did, did they escalate or did they chill out? Right. Right. And so, so part of this is is a, is a, a is a is a poor understanding of how the how the world operates. And so, yes, I think it is dangerous that there are senior leaders in the Republican Party that think we should be having a pinky promise or working with Russia and negotiate with Russia. Russia is our adversary. They're our enemy. Vladimir Putin is not going to change 
every president since since George W. Bush, and I'm a fan of, of W, thought that they can change Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is not going to change, and the only thing that they know is for us, and the only thing we should be doing is how do we help the Ukrainians win this war? And the sooner we help them, the sooner they can do that, and the better off the entire world and our economy is going to be. Other than Russia, who else should we be worried about in the world? The Chinese government in, in the story. And I always try to say the Chinese government. It's not the Chinese people. It's not Chinese cu- uh, uh, culture. It's not the Chinese Americans. You know, the amount of, uh, of hate our Asian American brothers and sisters have seen since the pandemic is just unacceptable. And we should be doing everything to, to root that out. But the Chinese government is trying to surpass the United States of America as a global superpower. That is not my opinion. That is not things I learned when I was in the CIA as an undercover officer overseas. This is what the Chinese government is saying about themselves in English. And they're going to do that by becoming the world leader in a number of advanced technologies, Uh, 5G, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, hypersonics, synthetic biology. And and this is the, the battlefield of this Cold War with the Chinese government. And anybody who thinks we're not already in a Cold War doesn't understand what's really going on. Now, does this Cold War have to lead to conflict? No. The United States and China can coexist. Our economies are already interconnected. Our cultures are already interconnected in a way that, they never, uh, that our economy never was with the Soviet Union. However, we need to make sure that the Chinese government is following, following international rules and norms. And we need to be prepared to compete, which we can, and we need to be prepared to be tough, which unfortunately the last two administrations um, haven't been. So you talked about the Chinese government. Uh, The Chinese government dictates that Chinese students are limited to 45 minutes of TikTok every day. And that's TikTok in China is educational based and not entertainment based like we have over here. Considering the limitations that people are pushing the attempts to ban TikTok or limit TikTok on government-owned websites, uh, do you think is making headway? I think the fact that we're all talking about it is is valuable. Banning technologies is always a difficult proposition, but guess what? Governments, and whether it's federal, state, or, or local, can say, hey, these are things that are allowed on, on, devices, on devices that we own. I know, I think it's been two states have tried to ban it in the entire, in the entire state, how about we start educating our kids on why, how the, how we're supposed to be using these tools and what they're, what's being done with them? How about parents uh, being more involved in understanding um, these tools and 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 how people are using them and and being you know talking about what does it mean to be a good digital citizen? Um, I also think we made an error in the early '90s when we carved social media out from the, the, the Communications Decency Act. Everybody talks about Section 230. And we basically said social media were not, you know, uh, producers of content. So they shouldn't follow or have to, be, have to be a subject to the same rules and regulations that television and newspapers are subject to. Well, that was a mistake. And so I think that's how we saw um, a social media grow out, get out of hand. And nobody thought when this was started that, you know, things like, you know, social media was going to lead to young girls cutting themselves more and, and having these negative uh, body images. And so, so uh, we, we got to address those underlying issues. And then let's learn from this experience and not make the same mistakes with future technologies like artificial intelligence. Um, and I think for me, that starts with make sure artificial intelligence follows the law, right? Don't carve it out. It's nothing special. Um, it's got to follow all the rules um, of the road, even though it's different, but it's doing some of the same things that we've always had to do. And so so this is, we got to get better at this because this we already talked about the interconnection of all these devices, the ability to push information and being able to to generate original content quicker which is what artificial intelligence is enabling, we're going to see some of these trends exacerbated. I want to move on to politics. You've criticized your own uh, party for a lack of vision. We often hear what's wrong with the country, but we don't always hear about the Ronald Reagan shining city on the hill vision. So tell me 
as we enter the 2024 presidential cycle, where the Republican Party, in your mind, needs to go? We, Americans, right? We need a United States of America where the American dream is within reach for all, not just a select few. We need a government that has the trust of the people that is governing because we're using common sense and technology to provide uh, efficient services, right? We, we need an economy where AI and automation doesn't lead to unemployment, but it leads to more people having more fulfilling and rewarding jobs and everybody moving up the economic ladder. We, we need our communities that are devoid of gun violence, income inequality, and, and homelessness because we're focusing on helping people move up that economic a ladder and we're dealing with, with mental health. We need a period of unprecedented peace because our military is so strong, nobody wants to mess with us, and our alliances are so tight, everybody wants to be our friend, right? Like these are the things that that we can achieve. And those those timeless principles that have allowed us and enabled us to be the greatest country on the history of the planet are the same values and principles that it can allow us to take advantage of this limitless potential of our future. And the thing that I've learned is that most Americans want this vision of what we're talking about. And in order to do that, we need people that are looking to the future, not looking to the past. We need people that are that are willing to, to recognize and understand that we're better together rather than trying to, to fear monger. Right? Like, that's what most people people want. And, and, and the reality is that's what the people have told us, voters are told us in 2020 and 2022. The lesson of the 2020 election, don't be a jerk and don't be a socialist. The, the lesson of, of 2022, can it matter? And we need, we need people that are focused on common sense. We need common sense in these complicated times. And that's, that's what the opportunity is. President Biden has some of the lowest job approval ratings in the history of a president, but he will win. And his, 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 his plan is based on Donald Trump being the, the nominee. And, and we can't have that. And we know Donald Trump lost the, when he came into power, we lost the, the house in 2018. We lost the Senate and the white house in, in 2020, the red wave that should have happened in 2022 didn't materialize, but the opportunity for Republicans and the GOP, is to be attractive to the middle and to those Democrats that are frustrated with the direction their party is going. But we got to nominate someone who can, who can, who can inspire them, right? And, and we need a modern Republican party that is talking about how we uplift everybody and to achieve that American dream. If we start talking like that, I think we have some opportunities um, in this election cycle. Uh, lastly, I just want to end on this note. Um, to give you a chance to offer more praise on Lindley. She was, you identified her as someone who is instrumental to helping you with your book. She's a former chief of staff to State Representative Lyle Larson. She's an astute political observer, and and now she's your wife. So I want to give you the opportunity to be able to tell us more about her. Well, look, everything I learned about politics, I learned from her. I met her in, in, in 2009 at the Republican Party headquarters in Bear County, where San Antonio is. And she basically came up to me as like, uh, are you lost? Right? <laughs> and I said, I'm running for Congress. <laughs> and I'm running for Congress. And, and she, she, she basically patted me on the head and was like, that's nice. right? <laughs> um, but but her, her boss at the time, Lyle Larson, had had been the Republican nominee, and he's a fellow Aggie, and he was like, "Look, we're gonna help. We're gonna help this young guy." And Lindley was like my most important political advisor. I I, I didn't know much. I hadn't lived in San Antonio in fifteen years, you know, and and I'd never been involved in politics. And she was so important. Look, she I, I always had a little crush on her, but my staff would always be like, "Listen, you shake her hand." You call her Miss Wallace. It's yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You know she's too important to this to this campaign, and and she she was great, right? And I and really she leveraged her network, 
you know, we did a lot of block walking together. You know, we go, we go on the door and she's like, you're talking too much. You know, you need to cut that down to like 90 seconds, you know? And so, so she, she's amazing. And, and, and look, I, I, I say one of the benefits of me losing my first election was then it was okay for me to ask Lindley out, you know? And um, so uh, we started dating in 2015 and dated for for a long time. But she's my best friend. She's the she's she's wicked smart. She's up. She's gorgeous. She's talented. And and like I said, I'm lucky. And so so for me, 2023 has has been you know probably be one of the greatest years of my life um, because uh, that's when we we tied the knot. So well, technically we tied the knot on New Year's Eve on December 31st, uh, 2022. But I'm gonna go ahead and call that the start of 2023. And I'm assuming you still say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. <laughs> you know, I, I used to. Yeah, you appreciate this. I, I used to make a joke when I was giving speeches. But how, look, in politics, we always assume that we should agree with our elected officials 100 percent of the time. And and I used to be like, you don't agree with your spouse 100 percent of the time. And now that I'm married, I realize how wrong I was. I agree with my spouse one hundred percent of of the time, but but yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a great it's been a great uh, um, it's been a great time so far. Well, she's a lovely person, amazing, smart, like you said, and uh, you two seem very happy together. And uh, Will Hurd, always great to have you here, and uh, hope you'll come back soon. No, absolutely, I appreciate you, man. The first Republican debate is set for August 23rd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, site of the 2024 Republican National Convention. The Republican National Committee has established the criteria for candidates to meet if they want to participate in the debate. Candidates must do three things. They must register 1% in three national polls. They must have 40,000 individual contributors, and they must pledge to support the eventual nominee. Heard has stated he will not sign the RNC pledge to support the eventual nominee because of his refusal to support Donald Trump should Trump end up as the nominee. That concludes this episode with a look at presidential candidate Will Heard. Join us again next time for another edition of Beyond the Bite. As always, we thank you for listening. <laughs>